If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that this is a book we started walking through a couple months ago and are continuing in this Lord's Day. And as we have, we have seen how the, the New Testament church was founded, as we just sang, on the solid rock of the name of Jesus Christ how the Holy Spirit has been at work to build up the church of Christ and how that church has grown mightily in a very short amount of time. In fact, it's right there in Acts chapter 1 where you see that the, that the number of believers at that point gathering together was about 120. But just a chapter later, as the Spirit moves at Pentecost, as the apostles speak boldly the truth of the gospel, 3,000 respond and then... Not long after that, as Peter and John are being taken to prison, we see some 5,000 responding in faith to the gospel. That 5,000, the text tells us, were 5,000 men. And so you can infer there, along with their spouses and perhaps family members, that at the point we're at now in Acts chapter 4, that this new church in Jerusalem is made up of over 10,000 new believers. And what's most astounding to me about that is as we'll read in today's text, the Scripture tells us that this group of new believers numbering in the thousands believed and they were of one heart and soul. They were focused together on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that will be true of our church today as we look to His Word together. If you are able, out of reverence for the Word of God, if you would stand as I read our text for today, Acts chapter 4, 32 through 5, 11. This is the inspired Holy Word of God, and this is what it says to us today, church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, 
tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand this word and see the gospel in it. That we today might wholly lean on the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. We pray for this in the powerful name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's probably not surprising to a number of you that I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. I love Christmas food, especially all the Christmas desserts. I really like those. But, but I love everything about Christmas, and I, I especially love decorating for Christmas. I, I have this, this dream that one day I'll have one of those homes that you'll see from outer space because there's so many lights on it. We've toned down over the years because of the, the light bills, but I, I love decorating for Christmas. I, I really enjoy it, and one of my favorite things to put out in the yard every year is our nativity scene. After all, that, that is the focus of the Christmas season. It's the birth of Christ. And so every year, among all the different lights and things we put out, we put out this nativity scene. Well, this year, I started getting the nativity scene out, and, and I realized it needed a little bit of work. It's about 10 years old, and some of the lights don't work so well anymore. And so when I first plugged it in, it was a little disturbing. You had three headless wise men. Their heads didn't quite light up. And and then you had this shepherd's head kind of floating over here, and, and it was really hard to figure out exactly what was going on. And I just kind of pictured kids riding down the street looking at lights and, and being horrified at the headless wise men. And so I thought, we've got to do something about this. So I was up in Louisville for some meetings, and I decided, well, I'll go buy a new nativity scene. It is really hard to find a nativity scene. And so I went into a couple of hardware stores, big box stores, and started looking, and, and they've got about everything else. There's like a 800-foot inflatable Santa Claus in one when you walk in, and I just started thinking, can you imagine if that's in your yard, and there's high winds, and it comes down, and it would not be good. I, I saw at one store, they didn't have a nativity scene, but they had about a, a five-foot gold-glittering Eiffel Tower. I'm not sure in any Christmas tradition where that fits but you can buy one. Along with that, in fact, at the same display beside it, they had a 10-foot inflatable rubber ducky. In fact, they had all kinds of animals and all kinds of things, but there was no nativity set. And so I finally gave up, and I went home, and I shook the wise men enough to where their heads finally lit up, and, and hopefully they'll make it through the season. I, I don't share that story with you this morning as some commentary on, on how our culture doesn't has, or has forgotten the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, as I went to these stores, I really wasn't that surprised that I couldn't find a nativity scene. But I share it with you for this reason. We're about a week and a half away from Christmas. We're on the third Sunday of Advent. I would imagine that many of you, as you came to church today, may have expected to hear a sermon 
on the first couple of chapters of Matthew or the first couple of chapters of Luke. In fact, those are the passages we usually gravitate towards this time of year. Many pastors are probably preaching on those. And so when you come into Bloomfield Baptist today and I stand up and read for you a text about a man who sells some property and then another couple who sell but hold back some and as a result, God strikes them dead, carries them out of the church and buries them. Well, I can imagine for some of us, that seems to fit into the Christmas story about as well as the five-foot Eiffel Tower that glows. But I assure you, there is a connection here. You see, we have been walking through this book of the Bible as we walk through books of the Bible here. And what you find as you walk through the Scripture is that every story in the Scripture points to the Christmas story. Because every story in the Scripture points to the Gospel. And that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis. When Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against Him, He gave them the promise of Christmas. He said, one day, from the seed of the woman, one would come who would crush the head of the enemy. It would be Emmanuel, Christ our King. He pointed towards the nativity that we celebrate. And so as we come to a text like this today, we learn of how Christ grew to be a man and how He went to the cross for our sin and how desperately we needed Him to go to the cross for our sin. What we will see in this text today is what we see throughout the Scripture. It's the story of Christmas. It's the story of the Gospel It's the story of redemption that Christ offers each of us. We've seen that redemption at work in the lives of so many in the early church. And as we've seen Christ redeem, what we've seen is the Holy Spirit of God come in and transform lives. And we see an example of that in today's text. This man named Joseph who receives a a nickname, another name from the apostles, Barnabas. He's a man transformed by the gospel. And we see him in contrast with this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. A couple who on the outside may, may appear to be transformed, but the scripture helps us to see their heart is not genuinely transformed. And as we see this story unfold, I pray that you and I might better understand our own hearts today and our own need for the gospel. Because the gospel is the only thing, friend that has the power to truly change us. And we see that change at work in this man's life, Joseph. So we'll begin with him in point one of your outline there. You see, Joseph is one transformed by the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result, what we see is a spirit-filled heart focused on giving and not receiving. Again, consider the context here for a moment. There are... People from so many different backgrounds here gathered in this church. When we think of church today, you look around the room and you think, you know, a lot of people look alike, a lot of people are in the same families, a lot of people have similar experiences, but what you have here in, this, in the New Testament church, in this new church in Jerusalem, are people from vastly different backgrounds with very different stories. We've learned about some of their stories just in our study so far. We learned about the story of a man who for 40 years was sat down there at the gate to the temple 
lame, he could not walk, and all he could do was beg for money every day. And as we studied his story, we talked about how we've seen in the Gospels people's response to people in that condition. The disciples himself asking Jesus once, is this man, a man they encountered, is he like this because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? That's how many would have responded to that lame man. And so you can imagine day after day, people walking into that temple to pray, to give alms, passing by that man thinking, well, well, look at him, look at what his sin has done to him, look at what his parents' sin has done to him. And now what you have in the church in Jerusalem is that man has been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus. He has been given the ability now to walk, and he is there in the church worshiping likely beside some of those religious men who walked past him and who looked down on him and who they too have been redeemed by the same gospel. Story after story after story, thousands of them, different backgrounds, different situations, and they've all come together to worship. Now think about that for a moment. How does that happen? That The church in Jerusalem is only a few months old. It's full of new believers. And the scripture says they're of one heart. That this church and many others have existed for far longer than the church in Jerusalem did at that point. People in this room and in many other churches have been believers far longer than these thousands. And yet rarely do you hear people say of us that we are of one heart and soul. You're more likely to hear that that, that, that churches don't get along for this reason or that reason, or there's this division there or that division. And that's not the case here. Why is that? Well, I think A.W. Tozier gave a great illustration, and he said it this way. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned Not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He basically says, you you can have a hundred pianos and they can sound exactly the same. Not because they tried to sound the same, but because the same standard was used to tune every one of them. That is a picture of what the church should look like. We don't come together in the church with the goal or the motivation to just get along, to have fellowship, to look alike, to be alike. What we should come together in the church with, what should drive us, is a central focus on the gospel of Jesus. And as we walk with Christ, as we walk in faith, we become so transformed in His his image, then we experience that unity, then that fellowship. But sadly, what happens often is we don't have that common focus, and that's where we have those divisions. That's not the case here in the book of Acts. What we're seeing here is what we see in 1 John 1-7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, that is how you and I, that is how we as a church are to have fellowship. And not because we have the same opinions, persuasion, thoughts on everything, but because we are so focused on the gospel of Jesus that that's what brings us together as a church. And when that happens, it's an amazing thing. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. And as a result of it, notice the fruit, verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
but they had everything in common. Now, this is not a, a biblical foundation for why we should be communists, for example. Uh, this is saying that everybody owned things. They had individual rights, individual ownership. But these Christians, as they gathered together, they, they understood that what they had wasn't truly theirs, that it was the Lord's, and He had called them to be stewards of it. And as a result, if there was a need, they were going to meet it. And then the Scripture gives us an example of this man named Joseph. Joseph comes into this gathering, and he notices there are needs. And then Joseph considers that he owns this field over here. And the Spirit of God begins to work in Joseph's life, and he's thinking something on the lines of, okay, here's this need in the church. Here's this resource God's given me. If I can sell this for this much, I can put it over here, and then the church can use it for this need for these people. It doesn't say that every need in the city of Jerusalem was met, but it says every need within that Christian community was being met. Because you had guys like Joseph. And I don't think that this is the first generous thing that Joseph ever did. Because we know him better by what name? By Barnabas. The apostles give him that name. That means son of encouragement. And the indication in the text is not that he just got that name when he gave that gift. He was already being called that. Why? Well, because Barnabas was someone who was probably encouraging to the apostles. He was probably somebody the apostles saw being encouraging to other people. Barnabas was the type of guy that if you were walking down the hallway in the church, you want to see him coming. You get excited when you see Barnabas coming. Oh boy, here's Barnabas. Because he's going to be encouraging to you. He's going to be encouraging to me. He's going to say encouraging things. Those are the type of people you love to be around. You love to see them coming in the hallways of the church. Unfortunately, not everybody's a Barnabas. <laughs> and there's some people you see coming that you don't say, oh boy, you say, oh man. <laughs> because you know what's coming. Probably not an encouraging word. Probably not I'm praying for you. But something more in the form of a criticism. Maybe in the form of a prayer request, but really gossip, you know. We really need to pray about so-and-so. Let me give you another prayer request while I'm at it. You see, somehow in this church that is built on the foundation of Christ, we've not cared for it. And, and friends, we've come to the point now where, sadly, there's probably fewer folks like Barnabas and more folks with that critical spirit. Why, why is that? Well, I think it comes back to what we already looked at because our common focus is not on the gospel of Jesus. And honestly... It's because it's, it's the easier thing to do. It's our, it's our natural inclination. See, see, our sinful heart tells us to look at the faults of others, not our own. Our sinful heart tells us to, 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 to think about what we should be getting, what we deserve, rather than what we should give. This is an ancient scheme of the enemy that goes far, far back, all the way to creation. You go back to creation, and what do you have there? You have God's sanctuary that He's established for Adam and Eve, the garden. And what does He do in that sanctuary? He allows them to worship Him, and then He loves them, and He provides for them. He says, you can eat of any tree in this garden, just not that one. And why does He say that? He's protecting them. 
He's providing for them, and they are to worship Him. But what does the enemy do? The enemy comes into God's sanctuary, and the enemy says to Adam and to Eve, He's holding something back from you. You you deserve more. You're not getting all that you could be getting. And what the enemy does there with Eve and Adam is he convinces them not to focus on the glory they are to give to the Lord, the worship they're to give to Him. He has them focus on themselves and what they think they deserve. And he begins to tell them, "You, you deserve the fruit of that tree because the fruit of that tree will make you like God. And they say, oh, no, 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 God said if we eat of that tree, we're going to die. No, 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 you won't die. And the enemy slithers his way into that sanctuary, and he lies to God's people, and they believe that lie, and they focus on themselves instead of on the Lord. And the enemy is still doing that today. And that's why for many of us, when we think about church, We don't think about giving God glory. We don't think about how we can give. If we're honest, when we think about church, a lot of us think about what we get and what we receive. And that's why our comments are things like this. How was church today? Oh, I got a lot out of it. Or, well, how come you don't go to that church anymore? Well, you know I was, but I just just don't get anything out of that pastor's preaching. Well, what about this church? I, th- I thought you remember there. Oh, you know, I do. But you know, their worship's changed. I just don't get anything out of it. Now, if it looks this way, I get stuff out of it. But if it looks this way, I, don't, I just don't get things out of it. And the list can go on and on and on. Why do we talk that way? Because we've become accustomed to thinking about the church of Christ as the church for me and what I like, and what my preferences are, and how I think things should be. And in doing that, friends, we've become more focused on receiving rather than giving. And then the Scripture says what to us? It says the church is not about me, the church is about we, and ultimately the church is about Him. It's not my church, and it's not your church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And His name is the one we're to lift up. But sometimes we, we, we can seek to do that with the wrong heart. We can do the right thing with the wrong heart. And that's what we see happen here. And, and here's a place in the Scripture where there's this red blinking light. You know, you're, you're riding down the road, there's a red blinking light. That's telling you something. Slow down, stop, look around, warning something. The Scripture in Acts 5.1 says to us, Hey guys, Warning, you can look good on the outside and your heart can be in the wrong place. That's the second point there in your notes. Our, our motivation for giving, you see, can be sin rather than the Holy Spirit. We can do what seems to be the right thing with the wrong heart and have major consequences as a result. Here we again, we have this example of Barnabas. Barnabas seems to be one compelled by the Holy Spirit to give. 
Barnabas sees a need. He wants to meet that need. And the scripture does not indicate in any way that Barnabas is looking for attention or doing this for himself. He seems to be led by the Spirit, doing this for Christ and his church. But then we have another example, another giver in Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know the backstory. We can only put things together, try to figure them out. We don't know all the conversations, but indications here would be that they too are part of this young church, these thousands who are coming together, and, and there's something that triggers them at this moment to, to give, but to lie. So the indication in the text is not that they receive this consequence because they held back some of the proceeds of the sale. They received this consequence because they hold it back and then they lie about it. And they try to look like they gave it all when they didn't do that. What would motivate them to do that? I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira looked at Barnabas and thought, why is he getting all the attention? I've been doing a lot more than he's ever done. They want to give somebody a nickname. Give me a nickname. Son of encouragement, daughter of encouragement, something. Maybe they found themselves having conversations like this after Peter and John are arrested and there's 5,000 new converts. The scripture indicates the church took meticulous records. They gathered all these people. They knew who these people were. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira were a couple of those people and they're working night and day to make sure that they know who these people are and they're getting them connected to other people. And maybe as they're doing that, they're working and they're serving and they're giving and they're going and they're doing. And nobody's patting them on the back. See, when you think and when I think our good deeds have gone unnoticed, when we think we are due something that we're not getting, that is the perfect moment for the enemy to slither in to our path and to say to you and say to I what he said to Adam and Eve, you deserve more. And that's what he does here with Ananias and Sapphira. Peter calls it, he says, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart, Ananias? So Ananias, Sapphira, whatever their motivation, there's, there's probably a bitter root there in their heart. They feel like they deserve something they're not getting. So they come up with this plan. Okay, Barnabas sold this field and he gave this money. Well, we've got a lot more than Barnabas has. In fact, I, I've been wanting to get rid of this property here. So here's what we'll do. We're going to sell this property. But this property is worth a lot more than that field. Let's not get carried away. So, so we'll just take part of this property, maybe, maybe enough of it, so their gift is bigger than his. So they look a little better, so their name's at the top of the donation list. And we're going to give this, but, but we don't need to tell them anything about the part we're keeping. In fact, it'd probably look a lot better if we said we just gave it all, because that's what Barnabas did. And so they come up with this plan, and, and consider what happens. In comes Ananias. What is he thinking? He's probably thinking pretty good of himself. He's got money, probably a sack of it. And he's probably thinking, oh, they're going to love this. <laughs> Man, they made a big deal out of Barnabas. They're going to make a bigger deal out of Ananias. They'll probably put my name on a building. 
He comes in, he sets it down at the apostles' feet. He's probably just waiting for them to say, Oh, Ananias, look at what you've done. Look at your great sacrifice. Look at this gift you've given. There's never been anyone like you who's given this much. Maybe he's waiting for, Well, I wonder what they're going to call me. Barnabas is taken. Maybe, you know, something else. I don't know. Peter looks at him and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? In the farthest stretches of his imagination, I don't think he was expecting that. And again, we don't know what all he's processing when that question's asked. But there's no indication in the text that that, that that then triggers repentance in his heart. Peter keeps going, and Peter keeps going. Peter says, listen, it was yours. And if you had just, if you had just sold it and kept what you wanted and said, here, I'm giving the rest, no problem. But, but Ananias, you're, you're lying to God. See, when you lie to men, you're not just lying to men. He says here, you've lied to the sovereign, holy, righteous, just God of the universe. He says to Ananias, Ananias, I'm going to give you a new name. You're a hypocrite. To hypocrite is an ancient term. It's one that the Greeks used to describe stage actors. The stage actors would come out, they would, they would present themselves to be someone they weren't. Oftentimes they would actually hold up masks or wear masks so the audience couldn't actually see who they were. So the audience wasn't sitting there going, oh, you know, that's so-and-so. Well, so-and-so's doing a good job acting like so-and-so. No, they were just focused on the character. A, a hypocrite, that word was someone who presented themselves to be a whole other person than they truly were. Peter looks at Ananias and he looks at a hypocrite. Because Ananias and his wife Sapphira were trying to present themselves to be someone they were not. Glad we don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> I cannot tell you the number of times I've invited someone to this church or another and the response I've heard in some form or fashion has been, bunch of hypocrites in that church now, I've told you what I say I always say there's room for one more <laughs> in our heart in our core guys we're, we're going to be hypocrites on our best day a couple weeks from now month or two New Year's resolutions you won't even keep those <laughs> what makes you think you can keep the law of God but here what we have is a plague in the church of Christ because we have two at a very foundational level whose hypocrisy merits death. And you read that, and I read that, and we think, that just seems kind of harsh. But here's the issue. Ananias and Sapphira were intent on looking good on doing things that would be perceived as good, of having an external performance, an appearance, that people would look at and say, there they are, they're, they're good people. But their hearts were not genuine. Because perhaps their hearts, like some of ours today, had not been transformed. 
And no check you write or deed you do is going to make up for what you and I rightly deserve. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 6.23 The wages of that sin is death. The scripture says that you and I rightly deserve death for our sin. But here's the problem. We think we're pretty good people. (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh yeah, I know some people like that. (laughs) The wages of sin is death. Yeah, well, I mean, this guy in history, he sure deserved death for what he did. This guy on the news, he deserves death. But we think of ourselves as pretty good people. What we think is ourselves as someone who, well, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've sinned, but I'm not that bad. Here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't say to us, well, if you've only sinned so much, you're okay. But if you sin a lot, then you're not okay. Now, the Bible says sin is toxic. And sin is deserving of the wrath of God. And it matters not what the amount is. Let me put it this way. I was to bring before you today a glass and set it on this table. And in that glass, I put the most toxic, deadly virus known to man. And you had not had a drop to drink in days. And I said to you, well, here's something that will hydrate you. It's got the most deadly virus known to man in it. You'll probably drop dead, but you won't be thirsty anymore. Who in the right mind would pick up that glass and drink it? But what if I did this? What if I, over here, had one of those big stadium, you know, orange coolers. We normally put the Gatorade, but we're not putting Gatorade. We're going to put sweet tea in it. I'm talking like two cups of sugar to a gallon sweet tea. Real sweet tea. You melt the sugar while the tea's hot. You don't add the sugar when it's cold. It's not sweet tea. It's unsweet tea with sugar in it. We're going to make the best sweet tea you've ever had. We're going to dress it up. We're going to get you a glass. We're going to put a little lemon wedge on it and ice. Oh, it's going to look so good. We're going to dump that glass of the virus into it. That dilutes it. There's a lot of sweet tea in there. You going to drink that glass? No. Why? Because it will still kill you. The problem is, most of us don't look at our sin as some glass full of a toxic virus. Most of us look at our sin and think, well, there's just a little in there. There's a lot of sweet tea here. (laughs) You're dead either way. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Whether that sin is you cheated on a test in the third grade or you're a serial killer, you deserve to die for it. And you and I rightly deserve the wrath of God. All sin leads to death. It's the last point there in your notes. Ananias' sin cost him his life. Sapphira's sin cost her her life. We look at that and we think this is, this is kind of harsh. And that's why we look at it this way. Here's why. Because we look at this and we think what they did. We think about what we do. And we start to think, well, if this is how God deals with sin... How are we here today? (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. If this is what God does when you commit this sin, then we might as well line up the hearses outside of this church and any other. 
And you put one there for me too. Because nobody's walking out of here. We're all gone for our sin. Why? Why does God deal with Ananias and Sapphira the way he does? Well, one, I think it's because we have a foundational moment in the life of the New Testament church where God is trying to teach his people something about himself. He is holy and he is just. And he will not then nor now build his church on hypocrisy. A church built on hypocrites will not stand. Only a church built on the gospel of Jesus will. And the same is true for your life and mine. If your life is built on hypocrisy, if you're wearing a mask today, if you're seeking to cover your sin with a check or an action or the way you look or dress or speak to people, if you think, well, I'm playing the part, then you, friend, the Scripture says, have been deceived. And while you and I can be deceived, God cannot. I don't know your heart, you don't know my heart, but God does. And God is not deceived. God is not mocked. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, they will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul says this. If you are sowing, if you are investing your life in the things of the flesh, in the sin you desire, then you will reap what you sow. And maybe it'll happen in a moment like it did for Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe it'll happen when you're 90 years old laying in a hospital bed. But sin leads to death. But he says there, there's another way, there's a better way. He says for those who sow the Spirit, they will gain eternal life. How, how do you sow the Spirit? What does that even mean? The Scripture makes it real clear. Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we are, yet, we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 10, Paul says, listen, if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And you think, well, I understand that for most people, but I've done stuff, I don't, I don't know if that counts for everybody. Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, friends, every one of us comes into this world and Ananias and a sapphire in our heart. And honestly, Far, far worse. And you can go through this life, and you can be in this church, and you can play the part and not be genuine in your heart. But God will not be fooled. God will not be mocked. And that is why His invitation to you today, His offer to you today is this. Repent and believe. Not because... You want to be called Barnabas, or you want your name on a building, or you want affirmation. Because repentance and faith is the only way for you and I to have eternal life. And there's something far greater than getting your name on a building. It's getting your name in a book. It's the book of life for those who will believe and receive the gospel. What is in your heart today? Is it genuine? If we could all know today the condition of it, if we could see what's in there, how would we respond? How would you respond? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a name that you, some of you may know. He was a physician and a writer from about a century ago. If you don't know his name, you probably know 
the name of one of the characters in his fictional stories he wrote about, Sherlock Holmes. He was said to be quite a practical joker, and it's rumored that he once played a, a joke on some of his friends. He, he sent a telegram to them. And that telegram said this, Flee at once. All is discovered. It's rumored that within 24 hours, 12 men fled the country. <laughs> they thought someone had figured out their heart. And there was enough darkness there, they ran from it. The scripture says you cannot outlive or outrun the consequence of your sin. There will be a reckoning one day. For Ananias and Sapphira, it came swift in a moment at an altar. I don't know when it's coming for you or for me, but it's coming. And the scripture says when it comes, we will either stand before God and we will say, Jesus is my Lord. I've confessed Him. I've sought to live for Him, for His glory. Or we will stand before God like so many and we will say, I was a pretty good person. Never killed anybody. I was a whole lot better than a lot of these people who went to this church. I know that. <laughs> but the scripture says there is only one name that will save us. And it's not yours and it's not mine. It's the name of Jesus. And if you've not called on that name, then I beg you not to let another day go by until you do. If you would, pray with me to that end. Father God, we do come to you today. And the only name that can save us. It's not my name. It's not anybody's name here today. It's the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's the one who was born in that manger that we all see on the cards and in the yards this Christmas season. It's the one that grew to be a man who went to the cross and died in our place. And so, Lord, I, I just pray, I just ask today, if there's anybody here, they don't know this, they don't understand this, it, it, it has somehow escaped them, they've just not, it's not clicked, they've not gotten it, Lord, would you, would you break through that in the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you allow the scales to fall from their eyes, that their eyes might see, that they might believe and respond to the free offer of the gospel? Lord, this is not something done by our coercion, by our persuasion. It's something you through, do through your spirit in men's lives. So, Lord, I just ask that you would do that. And, Lord, I pray for any here today who perhaps they've responded to that gospel offer, but, Lord, there's some stuff in their heart this morning. If they got that telegram, maybe they'd be tempted to pack their bags and run too because they live in fear and they live in a burden of their sin. They live... Scared that someone's going to figure out what's really there. That their heart's not genuinely yours. Lord, would you help them to see the free offer of the gospel. There, there, there's grace abundant. Your mercy's great. Your love everlasting. I pray that we would experience that today. Pray for this now, this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.